For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text MONICA to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Friday as we end yet another week of survival in Joe Biden's America. Congratulations. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. And we're definitely happy because it is Friday. Don't forget to check me out on social media. On Instagram, I am at Monica Crowley underscore. And on Twitter and True Social, I am at Monica Crowley. Also by email, I am at Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. Okay, um, next week, we've got a big show coming up. Actually, a bunch of big shows coming up next week. On Monday, we're going to talk about the FBI with someone who was in the FBI for 33 years. He is a tremendous guy. He cannot believe what has happened to the uh, premier law enforcement agency in the world. He cannot believe it. And he's going to be here to tell us the truth about what's gone down at the FBI over the last several years and how highly politicized it is. You're going to hear right from the horse's mouth come Monday. Also next week, we're going to talk to the great Art Laffer, um, who is an economist without peer. He is going to be here to talk to us about the state of the U.S. economy and global economy. Are we heading into a recession? How can we be prepared for what is coming? Art Laffer is going to join us next week. So big shows coming up. Okay, guys, today, as you may know, the truth about COVID including the dangers of the mRNA shots, is starting to come out. 
mainly because Republicans now have control of Congress and will be launching investigations into all of the lies and all of the fraud. So the truth is now being forced to emerge. Today, I want to talk about where we've been on COVID, on the virus, as well as what we know and what we're now learning about the so-called vaccines with one of the top experts on all of it. I am absolutely delighted to welcome Dr. Peter McCullough. Dr. McCullough is a renowned cardiologist, a public health advocate, and in this era of highly politicized medical research and corrupt public health messaging, he is also one of the brave few willing to stand up for the facts, the science, and the truth. He's also the author of two incredibly important books. The first one is called The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. The second one is called The Next Wave is Brave, Standing Up for Medical Freedom. Both books are available at Amazon and wherever you get your books. Find him on Twitter, where he was once suspended for telling the truth, and now he is back. His Twitter handle is at P underscore McCullough MD. Please follow him there for all of the latest. And I'm so happy that he is joining me now. Dr. McCullough, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you with us today to break all of this apart. I've been following you since the very beginning of the pandemic, and I think it is so important, and I like to do this with every expert on the pandemic and mRNA shots that I have on this program. I like to start at the beginning because over the past three years, what we have been through is a truly cataclysmic event in world history with absolute crimes against humanity. So I do think it's important to start at the beginning. Can you just bring us back to the moment where you, as a cardiologist, as an MD, devoting your life to healing people, can you bring us back to the moment when you first heard of the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2? What was your first impression of it? I initially underestimated it. I thought it was going to be like SARS-CoV-1, be about a 90-day pandemic, uh, limited uh, like another mysterious virus out of China. And boy, was I wrong. Three years later, we still have it. Yeah, I know. You know, a lot of people thought that this was just another kind of new kind of thing, and they were taking a wait-and-see approach. But I have spoken about being at Davos at the World Economic Forum back in January of 2020 when I was serving in the Treasury Department, and how um, at that point in time, the Chinese knew very well what this virus was and how it was behaving, and yet they sent a delegation of 350 people um, to join with the world's uh, leaders at that period of time, coughing on us, sneezing on us, all in small overheated rooms. They knew exactly what was going on and, and what this virus was. But for the rest of the world, it was still very much a mystery. When you were, when the virus began to spread, particularly here in the United States, did you see a lot of mortality at the time, at the beginning? I did. The very first patient at our medical center in Dallas came in on a flight from New York, a man about my age uh, uh, at the time, uh, I think 56, as I recall, and uh, he precipitously worsened in the hospital, had hemodynamic collapse and died. And so it really uh, got our attention uh, how it could be fatal. And immediately we jumped into action. And I had 
conceptualize uh, this illness as having two bad outcomes, hospitalization and death. And so because both outcomes are important and both should be avoided, we had to come up with treatment programs that uh, occurred before the hospital. So the pre-hospital phase uh, was the initial and I think most important focus. Did you notice, or how early did you notice, Dr. McCullough, that those coming in with serious illness and those who were dying had serious comorbidities like heart disease, which is your specialty, but also obesity and other things? When did you start to, to notice a pattern? Almost immediately, we knew the outbreaks were occurring in nursing homes. That was well documented in New York State and in Washington State. Uh, there were documented cases of worker to patient spread. The patients were sitting ducks. You know, they they can't leave the nursing home, or uh, you know, they're not free living, if you will. They're in a domicile type of environment. And uh, we quickly had risk stratification coming out from a variety of sources where we knew uh, that it was older age, obesity, diabetes, heart and lung disease, kidney disease, cancer. Uh, that comorbidities played a big role. Uh, conversely, we knew that the case fatality rate was way less than 1% uh, for almost anybody under age 65. A relatively healthy person under age 65 uh, was, was going to get through this just fine at home. So we knew our home treatment protocols could be restricted to just high-risk individuals. They clearly should be used in nursing homes and for seniors uh, living in their own uh, homes. And so this was done worldwide. You know, uh, there were papers published, a very good paper from Iraq, one of the largest ones at the time. They only treated about 25% of the adult population and that was high risk. And that's what we found in our clinical practice. So when you saw some of your colleagues coming forward with the Great Barrington Declaration, um, which came pretty early, I think it was August of 2020, something, something like that, around that time period, calling for a very responsible way of moving forward with this virus, which was isolate and take care of the most vulnerable, the elderly, those with these comorbidities, but everybody else should be allowed to proceed apace with their life and we'll manage it from there. When you saw that, you thought that was pure common sense, right? Were you shocked by the reaction, the initial reaction to that and the smearing and attacking of those doctors? True, great Barrington, authored by Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford. He's in my uh, commentator group at Fox, uh, but also Martin Koldorf, occasional guest on TV from Harvard, and Sunitya Gupta from Oxford was a well-thought-out document. Over a million doctors signed it, including myself. It came out around the same time as the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons Home Treatment Guide. So I've always felt that if we followed the Home Treatment Guide as a national standard, great Barrington as national policy, then we would have protected our seniors, treated those people at high risk, and then everyone else would go about their lives. Uh, what we understand now is the pandemic would have been over with in about two years. It would have been similar to Spanish flu. And in countries where essentially that happened, Central Africa, Haiti, and others, uh, where there was no mass vaccination, the pandemic is over with. Right. And that remains true to this day. So I, you know, I think about those early days, Dr. McCullough, and there were so many doctors who 
perhaps they just didn't know any better, but they were putting their patients on remdesivir, which ended up uh, drowning many of them in their own lung fluid, and ventilators, which a lot of people say accelerated death in many of these patients. What was your view at the time, and what is your view on what happened in those initial stages with remdesivir and ventilators? What's your view now? One thing we learned in in several papers, uh, one by Stone and one by Hazen, I'm a co-author, we learned that we could manage patients at home with hypoxemia, low oxygen saturation. So in my clinical practice, I've managed people at home in uh, O2 saturations in the 70s, actually for several weeks, uh, provided they have good mentation, good hydration, access to the medicines. So we didn't need to panic because of a low oxygen saturation. What we saw is when patients went to the hospital, they quickly became captive. They were put in isolation and there was a move towards early intubation. I think part of this was contagion control. The hospitals thought if the patients were on the ventilator, they could uh, control the expired air, potentially reduce the contagion. That caused great harm. There were some reports that 90% of people on ventilators died. Uh, Paper in JAMA by Graspa and colleagues showed 60% of people on ventilators died, including those fully vaccinated. There's no difference if you took a vaccine or not. Still, if you got to the ventilator stage, more likely than not, there was death. Mm -hmm. A recent paper from Johns Hopkins, now over the pandemic and looked at other pneumonias, they reported a 40% ventilator rate for COVID-19 pneumonia and all other pneumonias. Put it this way, the ventilator was too late, was not saving individuals and with respect to remdesivir, it was one of the first emergency use authorized products, and there was great hope for it. But as the randomized trials came in, uh, the overall data indicated that it did not improve mortality. There was significant kidney and liver toxicity, and this culminated in the WHO uh, convening an, an expert conference with human ethicists, clinical trialists, European Society of Critical Care. And November 4th of 2020, the World Health Organization proclaimed for the world that remdesivir should not be used to treat COVID. And when that announcement came out, uh, uh, our CDC, NIH, uh, HHS should have dropped remdesivir. Uh, all the state HHS agencies should have pulled remdesivir off the market because it was now contraindicated. But what happened is uh, the U.S. had doubled down on its investment in in remdesivir, and this goes back goes to your initial comments on corruption. HHS actually incentivized the use of remdesivir in the hospital against the WHO contraindication, and Americans received this product that that offered no benefit and significant uh, risk of kidney injury. And I previously published on this: when the kidneys are damaged, you're right, uh, the lungs can fill up fill up with fluid and it can lead to the demise of the patient. So the use of remdesivir beyond November of 2020 will go down as a record debacle in the United States. And I think the the lawsuits are going to be pouring in on this. So two related questions to this, Dr. McCullough. One is, um, initially, when they were putting patients on remdesivir and uh, the ventilators, is it your opinion that many of these patients died as a result of those two things or as a result of the COVID virus, uh, SARS-CoV-2, or a combination of both? Our CDC has always said, and I think it's a fair estimate, that 10% of people did die of COVID-19 pneumonia, 10%. So 10% of roughly a million people. And that the other 90% had significant contributors. You know, they had 
heart and lung disease, cancer, other things that put them at risk, meaning they would have they would have or could have died with a pneumococcal pneumonia or a typical pneumonia or influenza pneumonia. Uh, the Italians think it's more like 3%, 97% in their adjudicated uh, data. Having said this, the vast majority of deaths occurred in the hospital. And I've made the case that if we actually never had patients go into the hospital, we wouldn't have gotten into this uh, problem because the hospital offers what's called iatrogenesis, that is complications that occur in the hospital. So as soon as someone goes on the ventilator, now there's an opportunity for additional ventilator-associated pneumonia. Uh, there have been pneumothoraces. I've had this happen in my patients where the lungs collapse, uh, all kinds of uh, problems. And what the autopsies show in the end is that there's blood clots filling up in the lungs. That's what actually causes uh, the low oxygen uh, saturation. So once this was figured out and we started to use blood thinners as an outpatient, I think it was a, it was a game changer. Dr. McCullough, please stand by. So much more to get to uh, with you, and we are coming right back. Okay, everybody, listen up. We all want to be healthier, right? Well, to get there, we have to have a healthier diet, which is not always easy to do. I can attest to that. You know, that shredded lettuce in a double-double and the fruit filling in a donut are amazing, but they do not count toward the recommended five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Sorry to be the one to break it to you, but they don't. I don't always eat healthy either, but I will share that the Mayo Clinic says if you want to help prevent heart disease, lower blood pressure, and cholesterol, eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. I don't, and you probably won't. That's why I take Field of Greens. Unlike other supplements, each fruit and each vegetable in Field of Greens was medically selected by doctors to support your vital organs, like the heart, lungs, kidneys, and the immune system. Flu season is here, and I trust Field of Greens to help me stay healthy. Field of Greens works fast and tastes so good. It's really delicious, guys, and you'll feel better with more energy and you'll notice your skin, hair, and nails will look healthier too. I certainly noticed that in me since I started taking Field of Greens. If you don't always eat right and exercise, join me and take Field of Greens. Let me get you started with 15% off your first order. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. We're back with Dr. Peter McCullough. Before we get into the transition to some of the alternative medications like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and then of course the mRNA shots, I want to ask you, Dr. McCullough, because you're such a renowned cardiologist and you've been on the scene for quite a while. The public health folks in this country, like Drs. Fauci, Burks, Redfield, Walensky, um, and the others, and I was in the administration during COVID, so I had some limited interaction with Fauci and Burks, but um, I was working on the economic response to the crisis, not the public health side. But, I, you know, the, at, the, at the very beginning when we didn't know 
what this virus was and how it was going to behave. Was it going to be like the Ebola virus where you bleed out and you're dead in 72 hours? Or was it a more extreme flu? Nobody knew. So at the beginning, I can sort of understand some of this, and I could see it in President Trump. I could see it in the White House. Nobody knew. But once we had a handle on the virus and how it was behaving in the human body, there is no excuse for what these public officials did, which is leverage fear. They used fear as a weapon to gain compliance with lockdowns, masking, social distancing, and of course, later with the vax uptake. What was your impression of them, I guess, throughout your career of Dr. Fauci, who was head of the NIH until just recently? What was your, um, I, I guess, your, your career-long uh, interactions or impressions of Dr. Fauci and Burks and others? And then certainly once the pandemic hit, um, ha- what was your view of how they were handling all of this? As a practicing internist and cardiologist, I've always managed patients with respiratory diseases. Early on, I managed patients with HIV uh, in the 1980s and during my training. Now, Anthony Fauci was a a division chief at the NIH of the National uh, Immunology, uh, Allergy, and Infectious Disease Branch. That's actually a a small position. Francis Collins was the overall head of the NIH uh, in recent years. You know, of interest in Fauci's uh, final departure notice on the NIH website, he doesn't mention COVID at all. He doesn't even mention mm-hmm. it as a big thing in his career. Uh, so he came from a relatively small position. Uh, I have a different view of him uh, and his role during the HIV epidemic. I, I personally don't think he had much of an influence. He didn't influence me and in what drugs I prescribed or my attending physicians at the time. Uh, you know, he was uh, respected as an NIH administrator. And, uh, and you know, I, it is what it is. HIV became a very easily treated uh, condition. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry uh, contributed, you know, wonderful drugs that got into this combination called heart or highly um, active uh, antiviral uh, therapy. So, uh, so that was HIV. But when COVID-19 came down, uh, somehow he came. He grew from a small position to an unelected, relatively large position, uh, and, and then I, I, we saw, real, I think, lapses in incompetency. And Scott Atlas, in his book, points this out: that he just was ill-equipped to try to handle something like this. This was way too big for him. He should have called in teams of expert doctors. And I testified in the U.S. Senate on this. We should have had a team on contagion control, a team on early treatment, team on late treatment, and then a team on vaccination. And we should have had monthly reports to America. This should have actually taken on a real public health response uh, countenance. Instead, it became almost a a one-man show of of erratic and yet dictatorial inconsistent statements. It really became a disaster for him. And there could be a nefarious explanation for that, which is he is the globalist point man on all of this and that the unfolding of the virus and then the mRNA shots, that it was all used as a giant lever to remake the world. And Anthony Fauci is certainly one of the globalist predators. And so therefore he was, he was a useful player for them. Do you have an opinion on that? It's hard to know. I mean, uh, Atlas points out that uh, just incompetency, right? So he's not He's not trained to take care of patients. He's not an expert doctor. Uh, 
never known to be an edge person. And he's, you know, he's elderly, he's nearly 80. Uh, Then you have this interesting situation where President Trump, you know, fires 50 people after a few weeks or a few months of service, uh, but he doesn't fire Fauci. Uh, you know, that's the oddest situation. So Fauci kind of survives the Trump presidency and then he survives uh, and, you know, the Biden presidency before he retires. You know, early on in the Trump presidency, he predicts that there will be a pandemic during the uh, Trump presidency. And then he participated uh, in some of these planning sessions, one at Georgetown. Uh, he was a speaker. So was the current uh, coronavirus uh, task force. Uh, coordinator Ashish Jha, they were speakers at a Georgetown conference that occurred in the years uh, prior to COVID, saying there was going to be a coronavirus pandemic and what was going to happen when the pandemic hits. So, you know, there were elements to this that suggested that it was anticipated. And in the book by Peter Bregan, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, Bregan points out since 2012 There's been 36 pandemic preparedness planning events, including the Georgetown event, Uh, and 25 of them generated written documents. You can just read what was planned, and then then six of them recorded it. Now, whether it was planned that, in fact, uh, it was going to be intentionally unleashed on the population, or it was planning as a a biodefense strategy for the country— uh, it, it clearly there was widespread anticipation that a coronavirus pandemic would occur. Yeah, I'm of the mind that this was not a co- uh, coincidence at all, that Donald Trump's presidency, he was the only president to actually stand up to China and push back, also to put America first, and therefore was a huge obstacle against the globalist predators agenda, including the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, all these other transnational uh, organizations that are working 24 hours a day to remake the world into a one world government, global surveillance state, uh, by biomedical state, etc., that uh, removing Donald Trump, eliminating him by this massive international crisis was one part of the equation, um, as well as the bigger agenda. But I think Fauci was a willing participant in that, and I think that's why he was there. In terms of why President Trump did not fire him, Dr. McCullough, I think... Donald Trump knew a lot about a lot of stuff, including the economy, the border, how to deal with China, but medical issues was not part of his his um, portfolio. And I think Fauci made himself the indispensable man in that administration on this crisis. I think Trump was panicked and worried as any president without a medical background would be by this. And I think uh, Fauci positioned himself as the, the key man on this, and that's why he survived. Hmm. That's an interesting observation. Obviously, you were on the inside, so you would know. From the outside, one of the observations I made is that when Trump got COVID himself uh, as a, you know an obese elderly man, he uh, received er- combination early treatment. He received a primordial version of the McCullough Protocol. And he had a very competent doctor, Sean Conley, administered. Uh, Sean was hired by Ronnie Jackson, who's now a friend and state representative in Texas, and Trump receives early treatment. So he is the national example of how COVID-19 should be treated early to avoid hospitalization and death. And Trump had the opportunity to come out and say, you know what, I want every grandmother and grandfather to be treated like I was so we can end this, this 
awful situation for America and get through it. So he gets saved by early treatment, and then he drops it as a talking point. And uh, I, I think at that point in time, you know, he had the microphone. that No one was going to take it away from him. He could have uh, made early treatment absolutely, uh, you know, a campaign issue through the pandemic, get the early treatment experts in place. And, and we could have, you know, we could have saved two thirds of a million lives. So he, he's in that culpability chain of just dropping early treatment. And that's that's going to be hard to to walk away from. Yeah, I know. I mean, in his defense, he really didn't know anything apart from what he was being told. But I do agree with you 100%. Dr. McCullough, please hang tight. We'll be right back with you. But first, we're talking about health year, and we are in the new year, and everybody wants to get healthier, right? Well, after decades of wear and tear, our livers start to slow down and become sluggish. This is why so many of us struggle with weight gain and feeling tired all the time. Fortunately, there's a simple, all-natural solution that I recommend. It's called Liver Health Formula. Liver Health Formula contains 12 powerful botanicals clinically proven to recharge and protect your liver at the cellular level. It also helps to restore your liver's detoxifying abilities, boost your energy levels, and can kick your natural metabolism into high gear. Liver Health Formula is backed by the latest science and approved by American doctors, and every bottle is manufactured right here in the USA. And right now, as a listener of our show, you can try Liver Health Formula completely risk-free and receive five free gifts when you order today. First, you'll receive a free 30-day supply of nano-powered omega-3. This powerful blend of omega-3 fatty acids supports a healthy heart and brain with four times better absorption thanks to the special nano-delivery system. You're also getting four free eBooks to support every aspect of your health and longevity regardless of age. Go to getliverhelp.com slash Monica or call toll-free 800-282-1757 to claim your risk-free supply of liver health formula and all five bonus gifts. That's getliverhelp.com slash Monica or call 800-282-1757. You're covered by their 365-day money-back guarantee, so you have nothing to risk. But supplies are limited, so head on over to getliverhelp.com slash Monica or call toll-free at 800-282-1757 now to order Liver Health Formula and claim your five free bonus gifts while you still can. That's getliverhelp.com slash Monica or call 800-282-1757. We'll be right back. All right, we're back with Dr. Peter McCullough. So let's turn to those early treatments. And, you know, the, the, there was that immediate blacklisting and smearing of known therapeutics that were cheap and available like ivermectin and hydrochloroquine. What did you make of the early attacks on that? Did you have a sense early on that these drugs might, in fact, be efficacious against this virus? That was my very first uh, investigation on a new drug application with the FDA, and the FDA agreed in March that hydroxychloroquine could could play a role. And in our book, Courage to Face COVID-19, we, we outline what happened. Uh, you know, in France, in 2019, 
in the fall of 2019, they took hydroxychloroquine off the over-the-counter market and restricted it to prescription. That's before COVID-19. Mm-hmm. By early August, uh, I'm sorry, early April of 2020, in Queensland, Australia, they had put a book, a, a law on the book that if a doctor attempted to use hydroxychloroquine, the doctor could be put in prison. So, you know, what was going on in the world? This is way bigger than Trump. Something was going on in the world to suppress hydroxychloroquine. Uh, mysteriously, I think the second largest hydroxychloroquine manufacturer, the the uh, the, uh, the plant was burned down in Asia. Uh, so there was immediate pre-COVID activities to suppress hydroxychloroquine. And as it, it shakes out, hydroxychloroquine uh, was partially effective in prevention and treatment, about a 25% treatment effect. And then we really saw it with ivermectin. Ivermectin, another very safe, uh, you know, it's derived from a natural product, just like hydroxychloroquine is uh, used for decades. Uh, ivermectin has probably about a 50% treatment effect. So it's it's more, more effective. And in a uh, very important study done by Roster and colleagues from Florida in 2020 called the ICON study, multi-center study, uh, ivermectin reduced the mortality of sick patients, sick Americans with COVID as they moved into the hospital and during the hospital phase by 50%. And when that was published in CHEST, it, I, ivermectin should have been a national standard. Every single sick person who went in the hospital should have been treated with ivermectin all the way through. But instead, just the opposite happened. Uh, the FDA came out and said you should not use ivermectin. They they started a smear campaign saying that it was just a horse dewormer. This got on uh, out to all the late night talk shows and they declared it was a horse dewormer. Sanjay Gupta on CNN misled Americans with this. And the American Medical Association in the fall of 2021 launched a campaign to abolish the use of ivermectin. And while the positive studies came in, the AMA was trying to abolish the use of ivermectin as another important therapy. So we're two on two on therapies, but it got worse from there. Monoclonal antibodies, which came through the EUA mechanism, they were safe and effective, high tech, everything that anybody should want to have were restricted and they were continually taken off the market and hard to get. Uh, we had uh, the development of Paxlovid, the, the Pfizer drug, pretty late uh, its initial clinic, one of its one of the two clinical trials was positive and impressive. The other one was unimpressive and aborted. Data from Israel came in, which was mixed, but it became undermined. The CDC put out a health warning against it. Then we had the Merck drug uh, come out. Uh, very little mention of it. Large clinical trial, uh, not supportive. So we had the treatments undermined across the board. We had a very positive trial come in from Colchicine. Uh, it was never mentioned by the U.S. government. That's you know, it's a, over a 4,000 patient, outpatient, prospective, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial. Very, very well done. The best done of all the treatment trials. Uh, no mention of Colchicine as a positive effect. We had corticosteroids, aspirin. Um, I think probably one of the biggest areas of suppression that people don't know about in your, your listenership, and that is nasal sprays. Virucidal nasal uh, sprays, povidone iodine, uh, hydrogen peroxide, very dilute, xylitol, colloidal silver, they all work. And um, Nancy Mace, Congresswoman in 2021, went absolutely ballistic. And she said, why isn't our government not promoting the use of nasal sprays? There's 12 clinical studies, three large randomized trials. It's the only thing that's going to reduce the spread of the illness. Because people were spreading the virus around for 14 days. It could reduce that spread risk to about two to three days. 
if we actually reduce the viral burden in the nasopharynx. It also re uh, reduced the risk of hospitalization and death. In our book, we have a chapter on this. And we interviewed one of the CEOs of the company. We found out that the FDA and the FTC was uh, actively suing companies and uh, not allowing any research on nasal sprays in America. They were actively suppressing even so simple as a nasal spray and gargle to save Americans. So here we move into the uh, dark uh, possible explanations for what's really going on. As you just very aptly laid out, Dr. McCullough, you've had really uh, relatively cheap, readily available, effective therapeutics and drugs like hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, these nasal sprays, the whole array of potential uh, treatments that were being actively and hostily uh, suppressed by the U.S. government and really worldwide across the West and, and so on. So it was obvious that the regime wanted to channel everybody into the experimental gene therapy shots known as the mRNA quote-unquote vaccines. The, the regime actually changed the definition of vaccine, I think, three times over the last three years to accommodate the fact that these were gene therapies and experimental. So they could not get the emergency use authorization for the mRNA shots if they had these other drugs that were proved to be efficacious, readily available. Is that correct? You know, I think there's a nuance there. The emergency use authorization mechanism is a military mechanism. It's previously only been used for the military, for anthrax, smallpox, and some other products. It's not a public health or national public citizen mechanism. It's not even clear if the FDA needs to approve the EUA process. It's simply HHS uh, chairman says there's an emergency, and the Department of Defense says they have a product, and it's go time for EUA products. Now, under the EUA language, which is loosely written, uh, there can't be any other um, options out there, and it has to be life-threatening. So vaccines were to prevent COVID-19. They weren't for treatment. So remember, th there were already uh, remdesivir was out there transiently as an EUA to treat. Uh, hydroxychloroquine basically became restricted by that mechanism, which was completely in incorrect. We there never needed an EUA on hydroxychloroquine since it was already approved. So that was a mess. Um, but we had bamlanivimab, the first monoclonal antibody that preceded the vaccines as well. So uh, I think the vaccines, you know, had that prevention indication. Treatments were a separate indication, uh, but the EUA mechanism has been problematic. And uh, to this day, we're three years into this, and most of the EUA products haven't gotten full FDA approval. A few of the um, uh, the diagnostic tests have. Uh, but the therapies haven't. The vaccines are not FDA approved. Why not? Because the the biological licensing agreement letters that were issued to Pfizer and Moderna, the FDA said that they have to do myocarditis studies and provide the commitment to them, have pregnancy language and warnings in the label. They have to fully disclose everything on the label. And none of that's been done. So to this day, uh, we don't have... Uh, commercial products. You'll know when the when the F and the vaccines are fully FDA approved because the insurance companies will buy them and they'll have to be approved. And then there'll be a full package insert. Instead, they're offered by the government uh, with a blank package insert. So you, you know that they're not FDA approved. 
I've heard you, Dr. McCullough, speak previously about the military origin of these mRNA shots, uh, the role of DARPA, which is the military branch of medical research. Can you speak to that? Yeah, when President Trump came out and announced the vaccines and Operation Warp Speed, he should have been truthful to America. And anybody can just click on the website and see this. It wasn't hard to do. He should have said, listen, we've been working on this since 2012. DARPA has had a development program called the ADEPT P3 program, where DARPA has a plan to end pandemics in 60 days with messenger RNA vaccines. And they announced that plan in 2012. As part of that plan, Moderna got its first uh, U.S. flow of money in 2013. I think it just should have come out and said, listen, we've been working on this for nearly 10 years. We're ready. We just need to move it into this testing phase. America could have accepted that a lot better than finding out about it after the fact and realizing, wait a minute, they, you know, they, these were misrepresented to America. So uh, our def- Department of Defense has had a great interest in using messenger RNA for a long time. I mean, that is a topic for another show entirely because they have been working on this for a long time. Are you of the opinion that the virus came first and then the shots, or are you of the opinion, and this is a theory out there, that the shots, as you just laid out, were already developed, or at least the technology, the infrastructure for the technology was there, and then the virus was developed as an excuse to deliver the mRNA shots into billions of arms? I think there's portfolios. My understanding of the biodefense industry, which is a big industry now, is that uh, the defense, you know, the military of various countries around the world um, in biological products wants to hold uh, two asset classes. One is the threat, uh, the virus, the bacteria, the fungus. Uh, They want to hold that as a biological threat, and then they want to hold defense which would be like uh, vaccines, monoclonal antibodies, oral or intravenous treatments. So you have the threat and what's called the countermeasure. And it's just like having missiles and having a defense shield. Those two, you know, it's the same type of thing. So so DARPA, which is a very well-funded, very extensive part of our military, they have a smallpox monkeypox program where they hold the threat and they hold the countermeasure. Anthrax program, hold the threat, hold the countermeasure. And then in 2003, there was this idea that, wow, SARS could be another military, you know, part of the portfolio. And that's when um, our U.S. uh, government, uh, BARDA and the NIH and DARPA, they started working on the threat, the virus, and they started working on the countermeasure at the same time. This is exemplified in two papers that were BARDA funded, NIH BARDA funded. BARDA is the biological defense part of the uh, NIH. First author is Menacheri, senior author Barrick, one in Nature Communications and the other one in Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. These are well-read, highly visible papers. Both of these papers uh, in the title is The Emergence of SARS-CoV-2 into Human Populations. This is published in 2015. The work was done 2012 to 2015. And they describe U.S. basically defense-funded research that's U.S. innovation. Now, they had to do it offshore because of gain-of-function research was not allowed in the United States. So they contracted with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the Biosecurity Annex. Now, that annex had just been built by the French under the direction of Stéphane Banzel at the time, who's now the current CEO of Moderna. So Banzel knew the Chinese lab really well. 
Moderna was well positioned to get some of the first uh, biodefense money going in on this SARS program. So I think it's part of a program. Notice that the word countermeasure is actually used now in public health uh, speak. That countermeasure is part of the PrEP Act and the CARES Act. And we hear about that. That's a military term. Countermeasure is a military term now used in public health. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. I mean, the the government, the U.S. government created the virus via Fauci and DARPA and the military and the deep state. And they also created or had a heavy hand in creating the mRNA technology for the shots. So the corruption just runs so deep. We've got to hit another quick break, but much more of this very important conversation straight ahead. We're back with Dr. Peter McCullough. Dr. McCullough, in our final moments here with you, let's get into some of the specifics because you have been so outspoken about uh, a lot of the damage caused by these mRNA shots. You are a cardiologist, so I want to start with cardiac events. Can you walk us through what we're seeing um, in terms of myocarditis, pericarditis, what age groups are mostly affected, the people dying in their sleep, people collapsing, people dying suddenly? I explained to both Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram in the last two weeks on national TV that there is a straight line relationship here, a very straight line. And let's take athletes, uh, particularly uh, professional athletes. In 2021 early, the White House and Health and Human Services started a program called the COVID-19 Community Corps. And the website is, we can do this. You can go to the website and check it out. Over $13 billion of money flowed from the U.S. government with no accounting oversight to various organizations. And a prominent recipient was the NFL, the NFL. So the NFL takes the government money. By June of 2021, our FDA says the vaccines cause myocarditis and heart damage. Our FDA says this. And I can tell you as a cardiologist, I can't have any athletes participating in sports when they have myocarditis, whether they feel it or they don't feel it. It's, I can't, even before COVID, because exercise is going to precipitate a cardiac arrest in some susceptible individuals. So then the NFL in the summer of 2021 says we want to have a mandate, you know, stimulated by the government money to push the vaccines. And the NFL Player Association says we don't want it. So they get into this tense uh, you know, uh, battle, and finally the NFL says, we're going to do it. So the NFL runs these vaccine mandates from August of 2021 to March of 2022. They claim 95% of players took the vaccine, but the vaccines only last six months. And without any explanation, in March of 2022, the NFL drops the vaccines, and they drop the COVID protocols. Suddenly, you don't hear about COVID at all. And, you know, just before that, they were locking players up and doing testing every day and taking people out of games. And suddenly you didn't hear about it. So this was the oddest set of behaviors. And this brings us up to Monday Night Football about two weeks ago. Damar Hamlin for the Buffalo Bills has a primary cardiac arrest on the field. They called me on TV and I explained this. I I told America is going to recover. I'm a cardiologist. I do this. I receive patients like this to the hospital. He's going to make it fine. He got very good resuscitation, CPR, and defibrillation. I said, but if I'm the doctor, the first thing I want to know is, did he take a COVID vaccine? Because the FDA says it causes heart damage, and that leads to cardiac arrest. It's a straight line relationship. 
And none of the media commentators would mention the vaccine. None of the players would. None of the other doctors on TV would. They wouldn't mention the obvious thing. We're about a week into it. The doctors of Cincinnati Medical Center get on TV. They don't mention the vaccine at all. Now we're about two weeks, and uh, they have clearly not ruled out the vaccine. The players are screened for other problems, uh, congenital heart disease. He's going to undergo some additional tests uh, here. But I I can tell you, if he has taken the vaccine, his cardiac arrest is due to the COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis until proven otherwise. Two autopsy studies support that, one by Schwab, the other one by Chavez, both showing 70 to 80% of these deaths that occur after the vaccine are due to the vaccine. You know, the silencing uh, and censoring of the truth about the facts about these mRNA shots has just been so oppressive. I mean, Dr. McCullough, I remember very early on, I think it was like maybe um, early spring of 21, right after the shots were being rolled out. And remember Marvin Hagler, the famous boxer, he got the shot and he immediately died. And I think it was a cardiac arrest. And his family initially came out and said he died because of these vaccines. He died. He was perfectly healthy. He went into cardiac arrest and died. And they drew a perfect causal cause and effect between the shot and his death, untimely death. That family was immediately shut down. So now here we are nearly two years later, and we're experiencing all of this on a pretty wide scale. And yet nobody wants to come out and say this. People who do want to come out are being suppressed as you have been and silenced. I mean, I think the Buffalo Bills, the NFL, and and DeMar, uh, DeMar Hamlin's family have an obligation to tell the general public his vaccination status, don't you? I agree because it's a public health priority because other people are at risk. People say, well, Dr. McCullough, what can we do now? You know, the the, the Big Ten Athletic League, the military, uh, it, during the COVID era, 2020, they actually had myocarditis screening programs. I thought the virus was going to cause myocarditis. They didn't find much. And then they dropped the screening programs. They should redeploy the myocarditis screening programs in athletics right now so we can protect others. If there's no measure to provide risk stratification and protection, more people will suffer a cardiac arrest. That should be self-evident. It's not helping the public by trying to sweep this under the rug. You know, the first prominent athlete who died of the vaccine was Hank Aaron, a former baseball great. He took the vaccine. Uh, several days later, he's dead. The press releases try to you know disconnect the, the two, but it's pretty obvious he looked fine. He took a vaccine and died. And now we've had prominent person after prominent person, just one after another. And most of the time, the vaccine status is just, it's revealed. For instance, Irene Cara, the one who sang the song on Flashdance, you know, she tweets out that she's taken the vaccine and and then uh, and then she dies. And there's just case after case after case Lisa now. Lisa Marie Presley. We don't know what the situation public- there was, but she had a cardiac arrest of 54 and died. Right. We just they just literally come in now on a on a daily basis. And I, I can give you an example. When they haven't taken the vaccine, the family doesn't have any problem coming out and and telling us that. There was a, a young man who had a six foot blood clot removed from his leg, a very mm. tall boy. I'll never forget it. And people were tweeting, oh, he must have taken the vaccine because the vaccine also causes blood clots. And the FDA agrees it does. 
the mother came out right away and said, you know what, uh, I want to, you know, allay any fears. He didn't take the vaccine. He's got a congenital abnormality of the inferior vena cava. And it completely explained it. There was another uh, cardiac arrest recently, and it was a young boy who had had heart surgery, he had pulmonic valve surgery, and it, it may be a post-surgical complication. And the, the mother came out and explained it. W- what I'm worried about is when people have cardiac arrests and there's no mention, and they just say, well, they died suddenly. Uh, recently, there was an American Idol uh, star, a uh, young man, 31, cardiac arrest. And you you can just, uh, you know, right now on Twitter, the number one uh, trending term hashtag is died suddenly vaccine. I mean, that's trending number one on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. And we're seeing a spike in the number of excess deaths uh, since the debut of the shots. I know you have to go uh, soon, uh, Dr. McCullough, but I do want to ask you your opinion about whether or not these shots are suppressing the natural immune system. And is that why the more shots people get, the higher rate of symptomatic COVID hospitalizations and deaths? And is this also why we're seeing higher rates of cancer and other diseases because these shots are are stripping away the body's natural um, ability to fight off all of these things. In an unprecedented manner, we've never given a vaccine every six months, and, and it's genetic code coding for a dangerous, injurious spike protein. That was in a Chinese lab. Uh, the, if you just describe that to somebody and say, is this going to be healthy? There's no way that genetic shots every six months can be healthy and keep reinstalling the genetic code for the spike protein, it distracts the immune system, it burdens the immune system. And so people are susceptible to all different kinds of infections. And you're right, every analysis shows the more shots someone takes, the more likely they are to get COVID and get complications. And I see this in my clinical practice. People take shots, they get COVID, they take more shots, and they end up with blood clots, heart damage, neurologic damage. I think a lot of it is cumulative. So in these cases of complications, I asked the COVID history, and I also asked the the vaccine history. Both of those weren't disclosed in Presley or Hamlin or the rest. So actually, both are important, the history of the respiratory illness and the history of vaccination. Yeah, and I think there are so many unanswered questions about the suppression of the natural immune system that need to be answered. Two final quick questions for you, and then we'll let you go, Dr. McCullough. I've been calling for a COVID accountability project because I I think this has been one of the worst crimes against humanity that we have seen. Are you confident and or optimistic that we will ever get the truth about the origins of this virus and the mRNA shots? Will we have accountability for the greatest villains who have carried all of this out? And do you consider what we've been through in the last three years a crime against humanity? In our book, Courage to Face COVID-19, we outline the fact that there are two crimes that have been committed on a mass scale. One is fraud. The public has been defrauded. And then the other is mass negligent homicide. That is, lives were lost because of public health decision-making and products And those two crimes will stand. I think there'll be intensive investigation. There will be long, long lists of agency and agency officials who are culpable, you know, including the White House, two different presidential administrations, including uh, HHS, the CDC, NIH, FDA, the intelligence community. Uh, This is all coming out now. Uh, You know, we had FBI agents in Twitter 
uh, misleading Americans. I mean, all of this is going to come out. I think there's going to be a very deep investigative phase. I think it's going to last probably a decade or more. Mm. And people will be brought to justice because the crimes are too great. People were unnecessarily hospitalized. But worse than that, people lost their lives. Even those with comorbidities or senior citizens, they were robbed of their last few days or months of life. They were robbed of holidays and birthdays and family members, and it's a crime. Well, it's been quite a journey, uh, which is ongoing. And I agree with you that the truth always emerges, even if it does take a while. And we do hope and pray for full accountability here. Dr. McCullough, thank you so much for your courage and your leadership on all of this, particularly through the darkest days when you were attacked and silenced. Really, we admire and respect you so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Appreciate you. Dr. Peter McCullough, he is the author of two incredibly important books, The Courage to Face COVID-19, and the second one is The Next Wave is Brave. Please go and pick them up. He really is one of the greatest heroes of this entire pandemic and crime against humanity. Well, that was an incredibly important show, guys. There are courageous people out there like Dr. McCullough, willing to stand up to institutional power and the regime to tell the truth and save people along the way. This is why they went into medicine in the first place, to heal people and save them. This is what people like Dr. McCullough, Dr. Malone, Dr. Ladapo, all of the people that we have had on the show talking about this, this is what they are still doing. And God bless them for doing it. So please tell everybody you know to listen to the show today. Listen to the Monica Crowley podcast all the time, but specifically this particular show. It is that important. All right, that's going to do it for me today. Thanks so much for being here and for visiting our great sponsors. We all really appreciate that. Have a fantastic weekend. And I will see you right back here on Monday with another huge show about the FBI. Also not to be missed. See you then. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.